So um, my power is out right now. And uh, so my wife, I don't actually know where she is with the kids right now. She's somewhere uh, with heat and, and power, maybe my mom's house or something like that. So our power went out on uh, Friday night, like several people's did in the city. And uh, we know when a storm happens where we live, like we just know the power is going to go out. It's just kind of uh, the exception to the rule is if it doesn't go out, we're like, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? Usually it's like, uh, you know, if a cloud sneezes, our power goes out. So um, this morning we are, we're looking at this passage that deals with a number of things, but primarily it deals with an issue called anxiety. And anxiety has a lot to do with um, the future and not knowing what's going to happen in the future, even five minutes from now or tomorrow or a week from today. And as I was sitting in the hallway uh, when the storm was going on with my family, I was thinking about this and I was, I was thinking about the, the future and the uncertainty of that moment. Um, but then I was thinking about just all the, all the things that are so uncertain about our world right now. And I was thinking, man, who doesn't have to contend with anxiety, this, this desire to, to have some, some control that we can't quite get to about these things in the future that, that we're afraid of? And so I'm, I'm asking you that today. What, what are you worried about? What, what makes you anxious? You know, what, what type of things? Uh, for some of you, it might be things like fantasy football, unfortunately. Uh, for some of you, it might be like trying to find the right Christmas presents. Um, or, or it might be bigger things, you know, gun violence. Uh, that's something to have anxiety about. Uh, global warming, uh, the economy, uh, COVID. There's so much that we can be anxious about in, in our world today. In fact, there was a survey uh, that was done recently about anxiety and distress over climate change. And there were 10,000 people across 10 countries who were surveyed for this. How, what percentage do you think of people uh, said that they had anxiety? It was young people. It was, I think, uh, it's like 25, like 18 to 25-year-olds. What percentage do you think had anxiety about climate change uh, and distress about climate change? Throw it out there. 100, yeah, yeah. Wow, it's very, got very specific numbers. All right, so 45%, 45%. So 45% of people over 10 countries, 10,000 people sampled, they had a level of anxiety and distress over, over climate change that they said was affecting their daily life and ability to function. There is a lot that we can worry about in our world today. And what I'm not even going, I, I wanna tell you right off the bat, it's scary, like the world is, is scary. And so what I'm not gonna do in this sermon is tell you, uh, here's three easy steps to, to finally never feel anxious about anything again. I don't think any of us will leave this room uh, no matter what, what we get out of the text and just never feel anxious again. But I do think that we can find in here some really compelling ideas that Paul has experienced in a life of uncertainty uh, 
to connect with ourselves and God and others in a way that can help us to be more present in the life that we live and to be able to, to act in our world in ways in which we can make a difference in ways that we can have a life of faith and connection to other people, even in the midst of all these huge problems and issues that are going on. Because here's the thing, anxiety costs us things. When we live in a state of anxiousness, it, it costs us things. It costs us energy, it costs us time, and it costs us relationship. And I think primarily that's where Paul's mind is in this passage, is how anxiety affects our relationship, our connection to ourselves and to God and to other people. This inability to sit and live with fear, the fear of the unknown, that anxiety is, that's, that's part of what anxiety is. It's, it's our inability to just say, man, the future scares me and I'm still gonna just act in my lane anyway. This, this anxiety is connected to our imaginations. Our minds are really incredible things. We can go to the future in our minds. We can go to imaginary places in an instant. We can travel and traverse the past, the present, and future in a single second. But when our mind is imprisoned by anxiety, we lose the ability to travel in that way. We get stuck in certain places. And meanwhile, the rest of us, our body, our, our, our minds, and our hearts are sitting here in the present, but we're unable to engage the present because our mind, controlled by anxiety, is stuck somewhere else. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? Ever feel that way sometimes? You're here in the present, but every other part of your imagination and your emotions is stuck somewhere else. And here's the thing about this text that Paul is, is writing. So he's writing to a group of people in Philippi, but he, he's not writing from the uh, therapist chair. He's not writing from the ivory towers of academia. He's not writing from a place where everything has kind of worked out for him and gone uh, really well for him. He's actually writing from prison. He's writing this passage about rejoicing and not being anxious through the vantage point of prison bars. And so I think that's really important for us to understand because sometimes the Bible can feel like just these disembodied words that God's just giving you commands. But Paul is writing to us from the vantage point of somebody who his very hourly existence and sustenance is in question, okay? Ancient prisons were such that when you were there, there were no regular rations. Uh, there was no regular like food coming in. There wasn't a cafeteria or anything because for one thing, the prisons weren't meant to be like your punishment. It was like a holding cell before you got your punishment. And so when you're in prison, you have to rely on friends, family to just bring you food, to bring you clothes, to bring you like a, like a, a, a Game Boy or something to look at or like, like, a, like a scroll maybe uh, to read, 
right? So, and maybe you don't even have batteries for it. So you're in there and you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And you don't know what the day is gonna bring. You don't know if the letter you sent to your auntie got to her. You don't know if the people that said they were your buddies and your pals and they loved you, if they were gonna come through and provide the things that you needed. And so in essence, there was, there was nothing certain about Paul's future other than that he would need to rely on other people and the provision of God to make it through each and every day. That's where he's writing this from. That kind of cranks it up a notch. Maybe we should lean in a little bit closer because maybe his position can tell us something not about how faith in God works for certain people that might have a certain privileged life or understanding, but somebody who has to rely on others and God just to make it through the next day. So he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This, this passage is here because the third week of Advent as Amanda said earlier, is, is about joy. That's kind of the theme of it. And it's to remind us of the shepherds. There's a group of shepherds out tending their flocks. You guys know the Christmas carol. And the angel comes, the angels come and they announce that God is coming. That God is coming to the manger in Bethlehem. And they have joy and they rejoice. And in this letter here, Paul uses the word rejoice seven times alone, just in this one little epistle. And listen to one of the times that he says it in Philippians 2, verses 17. He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. What Paul has found here is something that I want. I want this for my life. I want this for your life. He, he has found a path to live his life to the fullest. I want, I want you to hear what, what I'm not saying too. He hasn't found a path to manipulate everything to work out the way he wants them to. He hasn't found a path where he's been able to position and curate his life in such a way that every day brings about a bunch of enjoyment in entertaining ways for him. But he has found a way to do what he has realized brings fulfillment to his life, regardless of what the circumstances are, regardless of what the circumstances are. So for him, that was to be a missionary traveling all over the world, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. But regardless of if you ever take a step with the intention of missionary work or not, I think that in this passage, we see the picture of a life that is marked by and expressed by and through joy that is so confident that he can tell the Philippians, you got to rejoice. There's stuff to rejoice about right here and now. It's not masochism. He's not saying like rejoice because bad stuff like should somehow feel good to you. But he's, he's actually saying that no matter what's happening, you can live a life full of intention 
in which no matter the experiences that, that you encounter in life, that you can have a full life, full of joy, full of things that can cause you to have need to rejoice. Anybody want that kind of life? That you could find gratitude, that you could find an expression to rejoice no matter what happens in your life. I do. I want that kind of life, and I want it for you all. Here's also what he's not talking about. He's not talking about magic. He's not just talking about the power of positive thinking. Like if you just rejoice in God enough, then it'll sort of like trick God that you're like happy about things and then he'll give you the stuff that you want, right? Like if you just rejoice enough, then it'll all kind of work out. It's not, he's not saying this is a test from God. Like, like I'm gonna give you all these bad circumstances and then see if you rejoice me rejoice in me in it, and then I'll give you that stuff that you secretly want, but you're just trying to rejoice in hopes that God, you pass God's test. That's not what he's talking about. And there's a clue here right in the next verse. And we're going to come back to this verse in a minute. He goes from saying all this about rejoicing to say, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Huh. Uh, so it's, it's, it seems like a, like a, like a side, side thing there where he's going into. Um, and for me, you know, I grew up in charismatic churches and um, uh, uh, years ago I was part of, the, part of this house church in Hickory Hill and, uh, and it, was, it was from a charismatic tradition and the pastor there, he used to always talk about uh, folks swinging from the chandeliers. He'd say, ah, swinging from the chandeliers. And uh, so I think about that when I read this next verse, because I'm wondering if Paul, you know, he's thinking about like the church of Corinth, because they got like really into like speaking in tongues and going nuts and stuff. And he's like, rejoice in the Lord. And he's like, wait a minute, but be gentle too. Like, don't be annoying about it. (laughs) Like, don't be a punk about it. You ever been around somebody like that, whether they were religious or not, but they were just like, they were just really annoying with their rejoicing. Like maybe they needed to do it, to, to do it so much in your face because they didn't actually believe it themselves? I don't know, something like that. Maybe you've been that before. I don't know. We're going to come back to this verse in a minute, though. Here's where we're going to rest for the next few minutes that I think is what Paul wants us to understand about this full living that he's uncovered, this way of living in attention of anxiety and waiting and finding things to rejoice about. In verse six, he says this, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You know, he starts this sentence and he says, (coughs) it's not COVID, I took a test yesterday. Um, He said, uh, don't be anxious about anything. Um, Have you ever ever told somebody you were struggling with something and they were like, just don't do that. <laughs> They're like, hey, I've got a problem like snacking late at night. Like I just get up and I just can't stop eating. Like, well, you should just not do that. If, 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 if I was thinking about doing that, I would just say, well, don't do it. Or don't have those cookies in, in the house in the first place. It's like, yeah, that's absolutely useless advice. If I wasn't struggling with it, then I'd be able to just say, no, I, I, I'm not going to do that. So that's actually not what Paul's doing here, thankfully. 
Because right after he says it, it's just this whole Greek uh, grammar thing and kind of the way Paul likes to talk and write. He's actually telling us, hey, here's ways that you can interrupt a cycle of anxiety. And I'm going to tell you first, don't do it, but I'm also going to give you ways to interrupt this anxiety that hits you uh, in life. And Here's the thing, by the way, I'm not, obviously I'm not a, a, uh, a therapist or somebody who prescribes anxiety med- medication, so I'm not telling people, hey, if you've got extreme anxiety, don't take your medication, just listen to my sermon and then you'll be straight. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we all struggle with anxiety and we have good reasons for it. There's things that have happened before to us and we're worried that they'll happen again and they were traumatic things. Or there's things that just seem really likely based on the circumstances that look really bad. And so we get into these loops or these these situations where it feels like there's too much outside of our control. Feels like there's too much outside of our control. And Paul is saying, hey, you can actually stop this process though. Uh, And he, he gives us this recipe of two things that sound similar. They sound like the same thing, but they're two different things. He, he says uh, prayer and petition, okay? These two things, prayers and petitions. So the word for prayer, uh, uh, let's try it here. Prosyocha, uh, prosyocha, that's the Greek term. It's one of the most frequent uh, terms used for prayer. And um, it means basically, it's like the most general thing. It's like talking to God, just talking to God. It's really interesting. It's also the same word is used to describe a place of prayer. Um, And then the second term, petitions or supplications, uh, deasis, is a specific type of talking to God that is like a a very needy, humble request. Like, this is really dire. I really need some help. Um, I'm down on my knees. I'm begging you, God, to intervene in some kind of way here. So the first way, prayer, just like a process of talking to God. The second way, petitions, like begging and, and pleading for God to intervene in something. And Paul is saying, instead of over and over in your mind, stuck in that cycle of anxiety, worrying, worrying, worrying about this thing that's going to come up in the next five minutes or week or year, that these two types of prayer can interrupt that process in the waiting that you can't do without worrying. So um, this first way is really interesting as I thought about it, as I prayed over it this week, this first type of prayer, it reminded me of confession. But not like confession of sin, although that might be part of your anxiety. Uh, But more general than that, uh, you're confessing of what you're feeling. Like what's going on with you? Like what are you afraid of right now? And saying like, God, I'm afraid. 
Here's the things I'm afraid of in life. I'm afraid this won't work out. I'm afraid that won't work out. I feel it in my shoulders. I'm all tense. I'm just so scared, God. What are we gonna do about this? What are we gonna do about global warming and gun violence and that my fantasy football team has lost for the third season in a row? So that type of confession of, of talking to God, and I was reminded of 1 Peter 5, 7, that says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. <clears throat> so, you know, Peter, the guy uh, credited with 1 Peter, uh, he, he was with Jesus. He uh, was, uh, lived three years on earth with Jesus. And this is what he says about God, that you can cast all your anxieties on God. You can confess what you're feeling, what you're thinking to God, to confess. And I think, I think that's a word some of us need to hear or to be reminded of, is that when you come before the almighty divine God, that God just wants to hear from you about what's going on in your life. And that God isn't judging the quality of all the things that you are revealing out of your heart. And this reminds me of how I've heard intimacy defined. As I think we can have deep intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit, through our connection uh, to the scriptures. And intimacy is, is defined uh, by some in this way. It's a sharing without judgment. Ah, so, so often the idea of God is paired with judgment, right? So that's why I wanted to bring this in, in this regards to prayer, because this type of prayer is very distinct and different from judgment. So intimacy defined as sharing without judgment, three things that we can share to achieve intimacy with another being, our thoughts, our feelings, and touch. So it sounds like, hey, I'm, I'm really scared about this thing in the future, and the other person not saying, well, you shouldn't be afraid, right? But being able to say, wow, that does sound scary. What do you need? What's going on with you? And this idea of prayer, these two different kinds of prayer, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to think about that this God that Peter knows, this God that Paul knows here and many, many others says you can cast those anxieties, those fears and those thoughts to God and God will care for you in that. Sometimes I forget that I can do that. Sometimes I forget I don't have to hold it all inside of me and just churn it over in my head, things I can actually do nothing about except for have rage and thoughts of controlling over it, and I can talk to God about it. So that first type of prayer that uh, Paul talks about, uh, prosiocha. And the second kind, supplication. That um, humble, on-my-knees requests to God to change something in my life. 
Again, Paul's writing this in prison. He's asking God to intervene. He's saying you can rejoice and you can ask God to intervene. You can confess your thoughts and your feelings, your fears to God. And I do think that God changes our situation sometimes. And there's occasional instances in which that has happened miraculously in the world. I don't discount miracles. Anybody who says miracles can't happen um, is, not a, is not as rational as they think they are, is not a scientist in the way that they might think they are. How could you say you've observed everything that there is to observe? Of course there could be miracles. Of course there have been miracles, unexplained things in the world. But also, petitioning and asking God to change things in our life doesn't often require miracles. Because here's, here, here's the thing. I don't think that our needs, any of our needs in life are so big that God couldn't have anticipated them. And now God has to reach into the natural order of the cosmos that God ordered and change those in order for your needs to get met. See, Paul's needs in prison didn't get met by uh, a raven bringing him food. It got met by people that loved him, cared about him, and saw the same vision of God that he did and, and spoke with that God and felt the presence of that God. And so they provided for Paul's needs. And so these two ways of interrupting this anxious presence, this presence that suck, sucks our, our time, our energy, and distances us from other people, it can be interrupted by confession, by confessing our feelings and our thoughts about the world, giving somebody a hug and doing that to, with other people and with God. And, and it can be interrupted by asking for what we need. This is the kingdom of heaven that the provisions that we need in this world are readily available for us and everybody else. And we can ask for those things. Jesus tells us that over and over. Ask for what you need. Ask for it. Anxiety tells us you have to control it. You have to figure it out for yourself. And then you can lift up your head and say, oh, I forgot that I could just ask for what I need. Maybe I didn't get taught that. Maybe I didn't, I didn't grow up that way. I, I have all these vague memories of struggling with some, something as an adult and somebody flipping a switch, like metaphorically, maybe even literally, like, well, you could have just done that. Oh, I, I didn't know I could do that. Didn't know I could ask for something. I didn't know I could say it out loud and somebody might be able to come and provide a need. Here's the thing. In verse seven, Paul says this. He, he, he doesn't say in verse seven, hey, if you do these things, if you pray this way, then you'll get all your wildest dreams fulfilled and you're going to Disneyland and you get a car and you get a car, right? That's not what he ends with. That'd be kind of cool, right? But that's not what he ends with. Here he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he doesn't, he doesn't even say, hey, if you, if you confess what you're feeling, you talk to God about what's going on, that, that God is going to change all that and make it so you don't have to be afraid anymore. Or that if you really think right now you have this need that it just has got to be met, like I just need this Game Boy cartridge here in my prison cell because that's the one I really want to play. Like <laughs> my son is so is is so torn up because he he plays Mario on the weekends and the power's been out and he's like losing his mind. It feels like the end of the world to him that he cannot play Mario. And we're like, dude, you're, you, get, you need help. You got an addiction. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm his parent, so that's not good. But we have these needs that are like that, that are like Mario on the weekends, right? And Paul doesn't say, if you do this, and if you say it in the right order, and you do it this certain magical kind of way, then you'll pass the test, and God will change all your circumstances and give you what you want. But he does say you can get this thing, this elusive thing that human beings are always searching for and hoping is real, but they're constantly looking in the wrong places for it. Peace. Oh, peace. The older you get, the more you appreciate it. Oh, I just want some peace and quiet. You ever heard, ever hold an older person? <laughs> the people with little kids, hey, amen, yes. Just some peace. I never knew how deliciously satisfying peace and quiet was until I had a baby. Peace, but not any kind of peace. The peace of God that does something incredible transcends understanding. It transcends, it goes over and through and beyond our ability to understand, to make sense of things, that it can't be rationally understood. I don't know if you've ever been around a person whose circumstances were way worse than yours had ever been in life, and yet they seem to be at peace. And you thought, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I remember this India Iree song. Any India Iree fans out there? Man, she's great. All right, got a couple. Okay, all right, I see you. Um, uh, she's got this song, and uh, it's called There's Hope. And in the chorus, she says, it doesn't cost a thing to smile. You don't have to pay to laugh. You better thank God for that. But in one of these verses, she says she met this guy who wanted to be a singer like her. And she asked him, what's it like? What's your life like? And he's like, man, this is paradise where I live. And she's like, he had no windows and no floors he lived a simple life and was extremely poor. On top of all of that, he had no eyesight, but that didn't keep him from seeing the light. And then she goes on to describe that when he asked her about her life, all she could do was complain about politics, about the economy, about racism, about all these different things. And she recognized that he had this transcendent sense of peace that went far beyond his circumstances the peace of God, to do something specific, to guard your heart and your mind. For me, um, I've come to know a portion of this peace as, 
as God worked in my life where I was obsessed about issues of justice, about issues of racial justice, of poverty, and things like that. Things that are like good things to care about. But I found myself with a lot of anxiety about these things. So anxiety is trying to control something that you can't control. And there was a moment in my life, I'll never forget it, and I've told this story before and I'll probably tell it again at some point, but I stayed home from church one Sunday in 2015 and I just, I just let go of my illusion that I could control all of that. My illusion that I could, I, I, would, I, would, I would from time to time Google, how old was Martin Luther King Jr. when he did this, that, or the other? And I'm like, oh, he's, I'm already, I'm al- it's already impossible for me to make any impact the level he did because he was only 32 when he did this or whatever. And I stayed home that Sunday morning and I, and I wept. And, and, and I realized that I was trying to hold something that wasn't mine to hold. I was trying to control something that wasn't mine to control. I was trying to, to, to force people to care about this issue. And underneath it all, I realized something as I confessed and poured out my honest feelings and thoughts to God for maybe the very first time in this area. And I realized that what I, what I wanted to know underneath it all was, did God love me personally? I realized that was my question. And I asked that question over and over and over that morning and something shifted and changed in my soul and my spirit as I confessed those things honestly to God. I wasn't visited by an angel. I didn't hear any loud proclamations, but I did experience a peace that transcended understanding, a peace that transcended having all the answers, knowing how it all makes sense. And Paul points to this idea over and over in the New Testament scriptures. You see, the, the, what the world tells us is that it's either this or that. They tell us, you've got to choose either this party or that party. You've got to align yourself in this way. Uh, capitalism, you've got to sp- we've got to spend this amount of money. We've got to raise the debt ceiling. We've got to do all these things, and that's the only option. But there is a peace that can transcend the understanding of these dualistic and binary ways of thinking that is offered through Christ Jesus, through the nearness of God. And this is where that gentleness verse comes in. A a very anxious person, a person governed by anxiety, struggles greatly to be gentle because of because of all of the things that they're preoccupied with. Gentleness requires presence. It requires a belief that things could change, that things could become different than they are right now. But unless you release the control you feel you need to have, you can't get to that transcendent peace offered through Christ to be able to see a new possibility. I saw this quote uh, on a good friend of mine's uh, kitchen cabinet yesterday when I was shaving at their house, went with the power out, I couldn't see, couldn't, couldn't do it at my house. And, and it said this, 
unforeseen options can become available when I accept what is. Unforeseen options can become available when I accept what is. And that made me think of Paul's words, that there are things we're trying to control, we're trying to hold on to, we're trying to say, not God, I got this. Just let me worry about this. Let me try to figure this out. Let me try to get stuck somewhere in the future or the past. You deal with the other stuff, I'll hold on to this. But there are ways that God can move and work in our lives that become available to us when instead of trying to control and manipulate things, we just talk to God about them. We just ask for what we need to, to other people and to God, and we admit those things to ourselves. The world opens up. Peace that transcends understanding will visit us. And I think that, in part, is a little bit about what Advent is about. Let's pray together.